Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello and welcome to the weekly lunchtime talk at the Art Gallery of South Australia. My name is Lee Robb and I'm joined by the brilliant artist Kynan Tan who has created a complex and prescient new work for Monster Theatres, the 2020 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art. As Kynan is in Sydney and I'm in Adelaide, we'd both like to acknowledge and recognise that we're recording this talk across two traditional lands and I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional lands of the Ghana people and of the Adelaide Plains and that we pay our greatest respects to elders past and present and those emerging. Hello Kynan. Hi Lee. Yeah so I'd like to acknowledge that I'm calling from the lands of the Gadigal and Wangal peoples of the Eora Nation. And I'd also like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and note that sovereignty was never ceded. Thanks, Kynan. It's great to be talking to you on the East Coast at this particular time. And I thought this would be a really interesting and important time to, to hear more from you about your practice and about the work that you've created for the Biennial while we're in this uh, time of, of isolation. But we're excited that our audiences and visitors will be able to connect with your work online. So let's go back to where you began in a way. I guess what I've always been fascinated watching your work since I first had the chance to see it in a performance in 2012 at the Bakery in Perth uh, as part of the Tura New Music Festival um, and as part of a commission prize that you won for being the most outstanding composition student at WAPA. I've seen you over the years deal with uh, probing, extending and understanding emergent technologies and always finding and looking for new ways to make them visible or audible or tangible. And, you know, I see that you're really a polymath in, in that space and that you've been using materials such as open source data and code and algorithms and computer generated imagery and audio. You know, how have you, as someone who's worked with experimental sound and programming and, uh, and video, yeah, how, did you, how did you come into this space? What's your background? So, yeah, I guess to go back a, a while, I started playing classical guitar in high school, mm. um, which I recently picked up again and, and sort of was amazed that it's still quite enjoyable. Um, but uh, I, hadn't, I haven't played for many years. So I, I played classical guitar in, in um, primary school and high school. And then, um, well, hold on, let me, let me get the timeline straight. So I played classical guitar. Then I was playing in bands, um, doing, you know, involved in the Perth music scene a little bit. Um, and then at some point I realised I wanted to go a bit deeper with all this. So I started studying um, a Bachelor of Music at, um, at WAPA, the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts. And um, I was very fortunate that when I was studying there, this new course happened to just open up the year that I enrolled, which was... Um, music technology run by the amazing Cat Hope. Um, and that was just such an incredible experience and opportunity to be part of that course as it sort of developed and as it came into being. So basically we, we were studying sort of towards this idea of, or this kind of 
framework of composition and music technology was sort of the key part of it. But we were kind of nestled in between the classical and jazz departments. And, you know, the next building over from us was like the film school and there were dances um, and lots of music theatre and um, all these kind of different performing arts as well in the same building that we were in. So we had a lot of amazing opportunities to collaborate with other artists and with other disciplines. Um, and we also had this amazing opportunity to learn a lot of different technology while we were studying composition. So we'd learn classical and jazz composition, theory, harmony, that kind of thing, but also um, learn the technology. So one class in particular was that we, was we learned how to use this program called Max MSP which um, I kind of latched onto and immediately, it immediately got me, got me hooked. So basically in that program, you can create software that generates sound, processes sound, um, composes sound, all sorts of things, but also it had a video component. It also extended so that you could use sensors and trigger things with it and do sort of electronics and robotics in that way. Um, and from there, it was a very natural progression to being interested in programming to make music um, to then being interested in programming to do sort of audiovisual work um, and, and other things in that space. So I feel very fortunate, but it, it kind of happened very naturally. Like this idea that um, when you had an idea for a, a performance or a sound work or something like that, it seemed very natural that it could have a visual element, that it could incorporate data in some sense, that it had these other aspects that you could tie into it um, and therefore, you know, explore these different sensory domains, but also bring other things inwards into the work. Um, and so I started doing some sound installation and um, some other things, uh, different kinds of performances, as well as sort of improvising with the computer. And then that kind of led me to making more and more audiovisual work. And then from there, um, making these sort of audiovisual performances that were very, very sound-based, very much like little concerts or like sort of a live, a live kind of experience to then making more work that fits a bit better within the visual art domain, uh, works for galleries. And um, then, and then, yeah, that, that sort of incorporated these simulations, 3D graphics, and then the, the later works incorporating AI and machine learning as well. Yeah. So what, what I've always found fascinating and inspiring about your work and your particular approach is that you've always sort of defied categorization. You've always worked in an incredibly interdisciplinary way and also often very collaboratively. I thought maybe it would be interesting to, to unpack one of your early works, which brings all of those things together, a work called Consciousness, which was an exploration and a visualization and uh, a way of making oral and sounding unconsciousness and sleep data. Can you tell us about, about that? Yeah, so, so I started that work, um, I was basically, like I was looking for data that I found that I would find interesting. And the, the original, I think the original reason I was looking for data was because I was doing these um, computer generated performances and, and works and often there's this aspect of like randomness, like you don't want the work to be fully, um, fully programmatic or if it's generative, you need to have something that creates something emergent in, the, in real time or something that is not, not completely fixed. 
And so I was looking for data and then I found, I stumbled across this data set of sleeping brain activity that was um, collected by some scientists doing sleep studies and um, released um, the anonymized data online um, as open source. And so I, I immediately latched onto that and I was just sort of wondering what that data could show, what it had within it, or um, sort of going beyond that, if I had that data, it didn't necessarily mean that the data was telling me something, but my relation to the data would influence what I could compose around. Coming from a music composition background, I was sort of used to this idea of trying to be evocative around a certain idea, trying to illustrate that with, with sound and, and make it affective as well as, um, as, well as sort of, um, you know, structural and, yeah, all of, all of that stuff. So um, basically when I found that data, I, I was immediately entranced and I um, started working on this, this sort of large-scale um, sort of audiovisual concert, um, which ended up being the, the final performance at the bakery that you would have seen. Um, and in that work, I, I did a, a number of different techniques of combining sound and video. Um, so there was like using the data to um, directly read the data as sound in a sort of portalization or sonification technique. Um, I would read the data as um, points in space that could then be visualized with 3D graphics. Um, I'd read the data directly as video or as waveforms that would appear on the screen and also sort of use the data to manipulate existing video footage and existing sounds or generating sounds that I thought evoked the data or evoked this idea of a collective unconscious and then um, playing with that. And so, yeah, I guess I was thinking around that time of, of like the internet and thinking about what an, uh, some semblance of the collective unconscious could mean um, for us um, and trying to sort of just grapple with those ideas and see how I could explore them with, with um, an art project. And yeah, it was, it was really fun and it opened a lot of doors for, for me for creating this kind of work. Yeah, yeah you know, I like that you, you didn't just start with, with something simple. You went into uh, areas like sleep and dreaming and the unconscious, which uh, psychologists and scientists have been grappling with uh, for, <laughs> for, for centuries. Your work has also spanned and, and tracked a lot of uh, emergent technologies in experimental music, but in larger popular culture as well. You know, I think around around that time or even you know slightly earlier was the rise of BJing in a way and like you said the creative space for you was how you would choreograph manipulate and intervene with with that data to visualize it and sonify it in a way that was you know authored by you yeah I think definitely and around that time I was heavily influenced by um, artists like Ryo Giacata and uh, Ryochi Kurokawa who were making these, you know, enormous audiovisual works where the sound and video was so tightly synchronized and seemed to be coming from the same source, some kind of source that wasn't just, um, you know, a sound generator or a video generator in some sense. And like that really, that really struck something for me. And that idea of this kind of synesthetic connection between sound and image, or as this kind of like relational unfolding mm. of these different elements that. Um, some of them materialise as sound, some materialise as image, but there's this kind of relational connection underneath all that, this sort of other thing that's happening that 
we don't necessarily have sensory access to. But when you see the sound and image, you, you get a sense of like there's some deeper connection that's binding these things together or forming these connections. Yeah. And yeah, I think particularly experiencing some of the works that you did in that space live in a performative space, the way that you even use bass and yeah, that sort of synchronicity became a very embodied encounter. And what I was interested in is, you know, that you, you have worked across video that can be experienced in a gallery performance that you know, can be part of a music festival, but then you even worked into sculpture and creating 3D works um, as part of the the city project and uh, the city constructed from sleeping brain activity, which are these extraordinary 3D printed sculptures in a in a dense black PLA plastic. You know, they they're, they're works that are still incredibly evocative now because in a way you solidified it in a way, which is very different to the sort of the viscosity and the fluidity and the temporality of other mediums that, that you were using uh, you know, and translating from that data, I guess. Yeah, like um, that, that work also came out of the, the same data that I was using for consciousness, but it was a, a year or two later. Mm. Um, and you know, similarly, it was an, a question of what kind of processes could be used to go between this data and some kind of um, 3D form that could then be printed. And, um, you know, it was a combination of things. Um, you know, I would change the processes I was doing on the computer in, in terms of how to produce this, the structure um, to go from these um, sort of waveforms of, of EEG data from the, the brain activity into a 3D sculpture, but at the same time um, figuring out how to print them in a way that would convey this kind of idea of a sort of the, the subconscious and all the sort of um, darkness and mystery of, of that. Um, and so one of the things about that was like printing them in this, in this deep black colour, but also um, sort of over, like pushing the printer a bit too hard a um, bit too hot, a bit too hard, so that it would leave these threads um, around the structures, which mm. kind of act like this sort of web or network of connections. Um, and then, of course, like trying to print like way too many, which took, you know, months of printing. Um, but to, to achieve this effect of like this sort of multiplicity of, of different views of different subconsciouses or of different, um, you know, different structures that um, sort of hold up that kind of collective unconscious. There's such evocative works that, like you said, you can see the sort of threads, but you can also see the scaffolding holding up these sort of clouds of data. And they're, they're just so compelling in what they're, they're trying to do, that being making something incredibly intangible and, and still very unknowable, uh, have, have a sort of visual, a visual form. In a way, this might lead us to a work that you made quite a few years later called Polymorphism the data center simulation work which was going into a different space around the invisibility of big data um, and you know of the sort of data centers that we can't see and access that house um, you know all, all of the sort of hardware that that runs the internet in a way you know, from google and facebook and making that visible in some way this sort of strange space that surveils everything but that um you know we can't actually see yeah so with that work i i was really interested around that time in um you know computational infrastructure 
I guess I was making these works of data visualization and doing these things that used a lot of um, com computer processes, but I always wanted to look sort of a bit further, a bit like look underneath what was happening there. Mm. And it's quite clear um, when you start to investigate things like the internet, it's actually, even though it seems very ephemeral, the, the actual infrastructure of the internet is this sort of, um, you know, enormous project of um, hardware and um, cables and computers and these buildings that are isolated and securitized in very particular ways and powered and cooled in all these different ways. It's a really fascinating topic. Um, I'd really recommend reading um, some of the writings of Ingrid Barrington on mm -hmm. that topic. Um, she, she really articulates it well. She writes about infrastructure beautifully. Um, but, yeah, my, my particular goal with that was um, once I started looking at this stuff, I really wanted to find a way to um, both sort of show the infrastructure as it is, which is this kind of like, if you haven't seen inside a data centre before, they're kind of like very sort of geometric or symmetrical um, spaces with like rows and rows of servers, usually in massive warehouses, um, locked in cages with cables running everywhere in a kind of chaotic but also very neat kind of way. Um, so I wanted to show that as it actually exists in the world in some sense. But at the same time, I wanted to create, a, create it as a video work and have it sort of hint at the um, extension beyond that space. So when we look at those servers, what do we think is happening there? Or, or if we're looking at things on the internet, can we, can we infer some connection to these data centers? Um, and so to do that, like I made that work, polymorphism, which has this sort of very, very um, it's a very dark but very aestheticized kind of deep blue kind of look, but at the same time has this kind of like constant hum of electronics and this low, low frequency bass oscillation, which is like, it sort of gives a slight tactility to the work as well. Um, so when, you know, the goal with that was to be able to create a work that showed that you can't see these things, um, you can't sense what's going on beyond that um, physical space, but at the same time, you always get a sense of, of what's going on. It's sort of this expanded, expanded idea of perception, I guess, that we can um, sort of perceive relationally as well as perceive what we sort of normally would call like sensory perception, like what we see and what we hear. And I guess it was, you know, I found it an incredibly sort of ominous work as well because it was thinking about uh, surveillance and I guess sort of interrogating a very, you know, techno-capitalist reality in some ways, which, uh, which led into a work that you made last year in 2019, um, which was called Production Smartphone Assembly. Um, that uh, was commissioned by the Lion Foundation in Melbourne and shown at the Lion House Museum last year. That was, you know, the visualising of things that are invisible and invisible labour seemed to be, you know, at the heart of that particular work. That work kind of, that work kind of started for me as like a, a research project in a way, but like not, not attached to, to my, my studies or anything like that, but just this kind of questioning of like what is actually happening like what goes into putting together a smartphone um you know we take for granted here in the sort of developed or western or whatever world we want to 
be calling ourselves, but um, that, you know, that we just get this smartphone, it costs so much money that we can easily afford and it's got all these components in it, but we don't need to know that. We just sort of see the, the finished object, the sort of mm. the final product. Um, and so I just started wondering like what actually goes into that and what are these sort of aesthetics and what are the affects of, of that process? Um, and then that led to just sort of watching a lot of videos, doing as much research as I could, um, and and then I f then producing this simulation, which um, in in the simulation there's a number of sort of humanoid characters, but they they've got this sort of shiny um, skin and um, their their movements are sort of a little bit robotic and a bit sort of just odd and yeah, uncanny in a way. Um, but I tried yeah, they, to. They have a bit of a Terminator sheen to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like to think of them as like sad Terminators in some way. Um, <laughs> yeah, Terminators that have lost their way and are instead in, a, in yeah. a warehouse packing smartphones. Yeah, yeah. Terminators undercapitalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but I tried to make the movements that they they undertake to put together the smartphone like fairly close to what I was seeing in the video footage. Um, so basically they, you know, there's, there's sort of five or so different um, animated figures that um, sort of check the components, they drill them together, assemble them, um, and then at the end they're sort of looking for, you know, looking for imperfections on this like very shiny, very sleek um, smartphone. Um, and yeah, like, I guess, um, for me, it was a, it was a great example of an opportunity to create work that would try to help me understand what was going on. Mm. Um, like it's still an area of, of conflict for me. Like, I don't know quite how to feel about all this stuff. Mm. Um, you know, with the way that the world is, is very complicated. I don't have a clear answer to what's going on, but by, by doing the research and do, making the work, especially it gave me a sort of way of exploring that through the creative process and um being able to make it make it myself um sort of gave me a deeper understanding of what what that process was and and how it kind of unfolds you know a very particular understanding of that of course but um yeah it, it sort of was very interesting from that perspective and um yeah i think also like i just i was becoming a lot more interested in in human rights and in labor rights and in um, what what workers are are doing and what the what the sort of flows of um, of labor and capital are in that sense and for me that was a that was a really good way to explore it um, to think about the the labor that is completely unseen but mm. that we have a sense of like when we get a when we get a new phone or something or a new computer we get a sense of yeah this actually would have been put together by hand it has all these components that have been built somewhere far away and um, we don't see that, but we've got a sense that it's there. And um, I think digging into that sense and trying to actually go further and trying to see it clearly is um, is sort of very key to what I was trying to do there. The work that you made after that and uh, the work that, that uh, you've been laboring over for the past two years um, when we started talking about the, the biennial, uh, you were interested in, in moving into a space uh, around machine learning and artificial intelligence and creating a work that, that I guess, went an, a, another step from that human labour to uh, emergent technologies and the 
potentialities around artificial intelligence in in the workforce um, from self-driving cars to drone strikes to robotic factories and that sort of led you to to create your your work the computer learns automation which is uh, currently running on a supercomputer right now uh, and has been running every day well, since the, the 28th of February, the day that the biennial opened and has been running irrespective of everything that's been happening around uh, the world, um, immune in a way to the impacts of the coronavirus. So quite a, quite a different space, almost a space of, of, of science fiction. It's, you know, it's, it's a remarkably uh, complex work, a three-channel video and sound work that all runs from one computer. And we've got it installed um, as a sort of intervention in Gallery 16 in the historic Melrose wing of um, the permanent collection at the Art Gallery of South Australia, a gallery which is thematically curated around ideas of memento mori and uh, and the afterlife. So thinking in a way about the obsolescence of human labour. Do you mind uh, talking us through some of the well, each of the three three works, the the triptych that makes up your your installation? Yeah. So I think what you what you described is is spot on. Like it's a a work that thinks about the, the end of human labour um, and it tries to um, make that process of training and of the, the com- computational systems, the machine learning systems, makes the process of training that um, sensory and in real time. So there's, um, there's three, three channels of video. Um, the, the first one is um, called Rideshare. And so that is a automated car that learns to um, navigate a sort of very simple course and get to a pickup zone. And then once it's parked in the pickup zone, get to a drop-off zone. So essentially imitating something like Uber or um, yeah, a rideshare thing or a food delivery service, something like that. And um, in doing so, it begins by just like crashing into the wall nonstop for days on end. Yeah, for the, first, then, for the first couple of weeks, it, it couldn't reverse either. <laughs> so. Yeah, it was just kind of like reversing like a few centimetres and then going forward again and then reversing. Yeah, it's, and, and that's, sort of, that's sort of fascinating to me because um, the system learns, um, doesn't learn by any predetermined rules. It learns wholly by the, um, the system that it's in and getting observations from the system. So the car knows if it's hitting a wall, the car knows if it's, um, if it's close to an object like front on the sides or at the back, um, it knows how fast it's going, but it doesn't actually know how to drive. It's a very different way of thinking about knowledge from how humans tend to think about it. Um, so that's the first work is Rideshare. The second one is Drone Strike, which is essentially, um, you know, an automated aerial vehicle that's looking down upon sort of a, a battlefield of sorts. Um, and it targets um, and shoots it shoots missiles at um, these sort of pseudo humanoid targets. Um, and then the third work is robot arm, which is like the title suggests, a robot arm in a factory that moves boxes from one conveyor belt to another. Um, and I thought that for me that work was just sort of a distillation of um, the sort of complicated process of logistics. Um, you know, logistics is sort of all about um, flows and um, the way that 
objects move across different flows and through different um, delivery networks. But at the core, there's this sort of idea of like needing to move something from one spot to another, um, getting, you know, moving something onto a truck or moving it onto a train or um, getting a parcel and sorting it and putting it in the right bin, something like that. So I kind of tried to distill that into just this robot arm that would forever um, try to pick up boxes and move them onto a conveyor belt. Um, and in making these works, um, so they're, they're all kind of based on thinking a lot about machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, so um, what the way that I engaged with that was by creating these works that use reinforcement learning. Um, maybe now I should just give a brief explanation of what those terms mean. So um, artificial intelligence is sort of the, the broader category um, and it is sort of a, the pursuit of creating intelligent machines. Machine learning is a, sub, a subfield of that that it uses a particular type of technique to try and reach the goal of artificial intelligence. So it uses um, programs that learn through experience. So they um, perform a task, get given some kind of feedback, and then try to learn from it. Um, and in doing so, you, they can be programmed to do tasks that are too complicated to program by handwritten rules or by coding, um, coding, you know, uh, sort of axiomatic structures. Instead, they can learn these very um, vague and amorphous and non-linear tasks. So, like, famously, um, uh, image recognition is getting very, very good. So it can recognise images as good or even better than humans can, like, identify objects within images, which is not really something that you could have programmed um, five or ten years ago um, by, by hand, of course. So... Um, I was using a specific subset of machine learning called reinforcement learning. And in reinforcement learning, you basically create the environment that the agent is going to be in. And the agent, the machine learning agent, it performs a task within that environment and then gets some feedback from that environment. So rather than having like a really big data set, like a lot of these machine learning algorithms use a huge data set of images, instead of having the data already, the agent actually generates its own data by moving through the environment. So in this case, there are these 3D environments created in Unity, which is a gaming engine, uh, yeah, like a, for mostly used for creating um, 3D computer games or 2D computer games. Um, and by moving through the environment, it creates its own data and then gets responses from the environment. Um, and so I was really interested in a few different things. One of them was the um, sort of breakdown between the physical world and the virtual world. So a lot of um, machine learning uses these simulated environments to train and learn and learn things. And then there's the idea that the agent would then be able to do it in the in sort of the physical world. Um, but in doing so, there's this sort of attempt to create a virtual world that gets to a certain degree of um, fidelity that could could potentially match the real world. And so I was interested in playing with that and playing with the aesthetics of that. Um, I was also interested in that, how long that training process takes. So I estimated as I was making the work that it would take about 60 days for it to learn how to do this while running it real time. Um, and so that was sort of the goal was to, to make it train throughout the course of the exhibition. And so begin the exhibition knowing nothing, not being able to complete the task at all 
And then just by repeating the task over and over again, be able to master the task and achieve sort of superhuman level skill at that task. Um, and then I was also just interested in, in what it would mean for, um, for labor and for our lives if all of these tasks were to be replaced by robots or by artificial intelligence agents. And those, the things that I depicted in the work are all, all things that are currently partly automated or soon to be automated. Um, you know, a lot of big, powerful tech companies working on these kinds of problems. And just thinking, you know, if all of that labor gets replaced, what does it actually mean for us? And, you know, a lot of people have this um, reaction to that to think, oh, no, it's terrible. It's going to be like Skynet, like the robots are going to take over. Like, what are we going to do without jobs? But I, I sort of take the other view and I think, well, what if this can be harnessed for the good of humanity? And what, um, you know, but, but I sort of, the caveat there, of course, is that we don't really have the, the systems in place to allow that to happen because we're sort of beholden to the, the existing systems of capitalism and, you know, the wealth, wealth being accumulated by very few and a lot of people um, not having very much, just a lot of sort of inequality that wouldn't let that, the benefits of this technology be spread equally. So that's sort, of, that's sort of the question that I had coming out of the work is how do we think about that and how do we, um, how do we consider how these sort of technologies will be distributed and will be used in the future and to sort of um, get a sort of um, a sense of the, the, the sensory world of that change happening. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm quite happy with the work. It's a shame that it's not being um, shown right now, but um, I'm excited that it, it, um, it might um, get seen sometime in the future. Yeah, and I guess one of the, the things that you, you created a work that was made for quite a, a specific time frame, that of the original dates of the biennial. At this point, we're hoping very much that we'll be able to extend and, and reopen, which means that uh, they will have been learning for about a six-month period rather than a three-month period. So, so it'll, yeah. it'll actually it seems- allow... Yeah, I guess allow you to see how, how, you know, how they're behaving and how they're responding. You know, one of the things we should uh, explain to our visitors is that uh, if you uh, go online and you can have a look at these on, on the, uh, the Art Gallery of South Australia website and then hopefully again when, when we reopen. But uh, accompanying each screen and each video is a, a set of data that, that tells you how long the um, self-driving car has been learning to to drive how many successful pickups and you know drop-offs it has executed how many successful targets the drone has striked and uh, and also how many boxes the robot arm has um, moved and also a monetary value on how much money that has generated for the you know fictitious company so to so to speak how do you think about the the work at this particular time one that you know for for much of it hasn't had an audience these artificial um intelligence agents don't need an audience um you know the the sort of it's it's an interesting space both as an artwork but also around more sort of moral and ethical considerations to do with the future of um of of ai yeah, it's really it's really interesting to me that they've still been there learning and progressing and um, 
I've had yeah, even a bit more time to do so. Um, and for me, I usually try not to think too much about how others will, will see the work and even whether they will see the work at all. Um, I, I guess I see that as like a nice sort of benefit of showing work is that people get to see it. I, I sort of feel like I'm really of the mind that if I'm, if I'm asked to do a project and if I can think deeply about it and commit lots of um, time and energy and consideration into making the work, that's enough. Um, um, but I guess I, I do wonder about um, this work in particular um, just sort of thinking about it in terms of times of COVID, um, it does it does take on a different a different tone, I think. Um, and yeah, I'm not too sure how it would it would go if people could could see it right now. And I'm I'm very curious to see what the reaction will be. And um, yeah, maybe trying to get some some feedback from people about what they what they think and experience with the work. So for everyone listening, that is uh, an invitation. So if you're listening to this through our SoundCloud account or online in another way, um, you know, we'd love, to, we'd love to, to hear from you. You're able to go in and, and uh, access them online and, uh, and see how Kind and Tan's artificial intelligence agents <laughs> are doing right now. <laughs> I just want to say a huge thank you for, you know, for sharing so much about your work and taking us through, you know, an enormously complex and fascinating and, you know, pressing an area of research and, and study. And, you know, it's been a joy for me to be able to, to work with you and uh, curate your work into different exhibitions over the years um, between, yeah. um, between Perth and, and now Adelaide. Yeah, um, likewise, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure for me to be able to work with you, Lee. So thank you. Thank you very much for continuing to build on that relationship. So it's, um, you know, I'll just, um, I'll point our listeners to your website as well where obviously we've been talking about a lot of things and um and i do think you are deeply interested in making visual um and i guess problematizing some of the greater um concerns anxieties and uh emergent technologies uh through your work so you know please Go and visit Kine and Tan's website as well, kineandtan.com, and uh, also the Art Gallery of South Australia, which is agsa.sa.gov.au. So thank you so much, Kynan, and um, thank you, everyone, for listening.